This is the One Thing Podcast, where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. I'm your host, Jeff Woods. Think about a goal that you have for your future, something that really matters, that maybe you doubt if you can actually achieve it or not. What if we told you you're only one habit away from making that future goal your reality? It's the truth. The problem is, while habit formation is simple, it can be challenging. For any of you who have gone on a 66-day challenge to make one thing a habit that sticks, you know what it feels like to pick that one thing and go, oh, I can do that for 66 days. And then to struggle because you start to miss days. And then you might fall off the wagon. And then you start to doubt yourself, to doubt if you can be the person who can actually change your behavior. That's the reason why we're having the conversation that we're having today. This person is going to help you understand that the key to habit formation is not about thinking big and acting big, but it's about thinking big and going small and trusting that if you can identify that two-inch domino and whack away at it day after day after day over time, all the other dominoes will fall. This is an interview that I have been looking for. You know, as somebody who is a practice leader of The One Thing, I live this every single day. I struggle sometimes. Real world example, I, I, last year, I looked up and asked myself the question, if I could form one habit, what would make the biggest impact in my life? And it was the habit of demonstrating empathy. Becoming a more empathetic person will not only help me in my marriage and in my relationships with my, my children, It'll help me as a leader. It'll, it'll help me everywhere. And I went on a 66-day challenge. And by the end of the 66 days, it still wasn't a habit. So I went on another. And by the end of those 66 days, it still wasn't a habit. So I went on another. And now I'm in the middle of my fourth. In fact, today is day 234 of every day consistently demonstrating empathy when I naturally would not have. And I'm just now getting to the point where my identity has shifted and I'm starting to behave that way habitually. I know the research says it can actually take anywhere from 18 to 254 days to form a habit, depending on the complexity, and the average is 66. But why is it that some habits take longer to form than others? That's why we're having the conversation we're having today. When we asked the question, if we could only interview one person about behavior change and habit formation, it's the man you're going to meet today. He is the author of the best-selling book called Tiny Habits, which is so aligned with us. He is a professor at Stanford University and runs the Stanford Behavior Lab. We're going to dissect why the key to habit formation is actually not going big. It's going small. He calls them tiny habits. He's gonna walk us through why celebration and that feeling of success is so important. We're gonna talk about how to form new habits, how to, how to break or untangle bad habits. All of this is coming up. So buckle your seatbelts and get excited for this interview with the best-selling author of Tiny Habits, BJ Fogg. Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. 
With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash ONE50 and use code ONE50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. BJ, welcome. Hello, I am so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So uh, give us a little background on who are you? Who yeah, is BJ Fogg? Well, let's see. I am a behavior scientist. Uh, I've run a research lab at Stanford for 20 years and split my time between Stanford and industry. So really, really odd kind of career profile where a foot in academics, a foot in industry. And I think doing that has made me sharper in each domain. Like mm-hmm. the academic work makes me better in industry. The industry work helps focus and select my research projects. And I'm all about helping people be happier and healthier. So uh, kind of a weird career path. And just, I guess, raised in a culture that was all about you're here to serve other people and, uh, and then help them be happier and healthier, make the world a better place. That's what I'm all about. I love that. I love that. So I, I know that you know, when you, you came out with, as you, as you wrote Tiny Habits, when you were selling the audio rights to Audible, you had one request that really, really mattered to you. And that was that <laughs> you be able to narrate your own book and they rejected you. <laughs> to walk us through the struggles that you had as a child why this yeah. was such an important goal and ultimately the habits that you formed that allowed you to earn the right to narrate your own book. Yeah, so I recorded a special preface. I mean, let's say, um, what do you call it? spoiler alert, I actually did get to narrate my own book, but it was not easy. It was important to me because growing up, my voice did not change until I was literally on a plane headed to college. And I talk like this. I talk like this all through high school. And so here I was. I finally, finally grew to be over six feet. But I still talk like this. And this was in late 70s, early 80s. I got totally bullied. I got totally made fun of. I share some examples in the preface. So then my voice, when I went to college, so I did have this lower register I could kind of croak in but I couldn't talk. So that was just so hard and painful. And then little by little, I got control over that lower register. But even now you hear my voice crack and it's weird. It's a weird, weird voice where I have a high register and a low one and nothing in between. So then when it came to narrating my book, it was like, this is such a personal victory for me. If I can narrate my own book and do a pretty good job of it. So... You know, there was Audible would not promise it. My agent wouldn't push for it. So I actually had to audition and I practiced for a year, a year. Every morning I would just go and practice and practice. And, you know, fast forward, I was able to narrate my book. And I think I did a pretty good job. And I'm actually proud of that achievement, given that my voice 
was such a limitation, really a handicap, a very, very noticeable handicap in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, have a, we have a saying, think big, go small, trust the dominoes will fall. Because, you know, for the people who are members in our community who are on this journey of living the one thing, the number one struggle they have is they, they imagine this vision of, oh, I'm going to be the person who has clarity on my priorities. And I'm going to time block these things. And they set the bar too high. Then they feel consistently like a failure. They give up and say it doesn't work. And when I'm listening to Tiny Habits, it was like the heavens opened up from above me because you brought (laughs) what we anecdotally had discovered, but put the research behind it about why it's so so important to go small, to start tiny, to feel success. Talk to us about this. Bam! Exactly right on. There's you know there's many reasons why simplicity changes behavior, and that's been something that I've been exploring and teaching at Stanford for at least 15 years. But number one, when something is easy or simple, you don't need a lot of motivation to do it. And the reality is, as human beings, our motivation varies. We don't have a lot. We can't always keep our motivation high. So when our motivation drops, we can no longer do hard things. But if it's easy, just like flossing one, two, doing two push-ups, pouring a glass of water, not even drinking it, it's pouring the glass of water, then even when our motivation's low, we can still do the behavior. Next, when something, when we do a behavior, even if it's tiny, and we allow ourselves to feel successful, that feeling is disproportionately big. It's really odd. And I haven't quantified this. Maybe in the, in the Tiny Habits Research Lab, maybe we will quantify this. But you could imagine somebody reading like a whole book in one day and feeling successful. And somebody just reading a paragraph and feeling successful, the feeling of success of reading just one paragraph can be disproportionately large. Like it's not as successful as reading the whole book, but it's bigger than it really should be. So for some reason, our brain really doesn't discount the fact that that was just a paragraph. And that's part of the hack and part of the mindset that you can learn in Tiny Habits is to allow yourself to feel good, even for the tiniest of successes. And that's going to be hard. I mean, people listening in you, and I mean, you've been in this space. You know, it's really hard for people to kind of recalibrate the go big or go home mentality. But you need to do that and be good with lowering the bar and allow yourself to feel successful for even the tiniest of successes. That is one of the small changes that changes everything, which is the subtitle of my book. I love that. I love that. So, Give us some background. I mean, what, what really inspired you to write Tiny Habits? I'll start with really kind of the end. And uh, just, I decided to leave this to the end of the book. So spoiler alert. I've been, I'd been teaching Tiny Habits free in my five-day program since 2011. On average, 300 people personally teaching and coaching through email. Just boom, 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 boom. This huge treadmill. And it was working and I was learning stuff as well. And then I was also doing research at Stanford and doing other things and on and on and on. And the people are saying, where's your book? Where's your book? I want a book on this. And I was like, I'm busy. And I just felt like I was too busy doing other research and basically discovering, exploring other domains to stop and write a book. Because I've written books before and I know they're massive undertakings. And then one night I had this dream that I I was in a plane and I was going somewhere probably to give a keynote talk. But the point was, at some point, I fully believed the plane was going to crash and I was going to die in my dream. And it felt like real life. And my reaction 
to knowing I was going to die any second was not about how painful it would be or that I was going to miss the 2020 Olympics or something like that. My reaction was, I have not yet shared my work in a way that's good enough yet. Yes, it's here and here and here and here. And if you come to Stanford, you can learn some of it. If you do my boot camp, you can do some of it. But it was this deep sense of regret, tinted by guilt. And then I woke up and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad that was just a dream. And I was like, that was really illuminating. And in the morning, I told my partner, I said, I had this dream that I was going to die. And what I learned is my reaction to that is deep regret. And so that was, was like, okay, I have to prioritize the book now. I've got to push back research projects. I got to say no a lot more often. It was a very, very clarifying reaction and a dream that I needed to pull this together and share it in a way that people around the world, and now the book's being translated into like 25 languages and so on. So really, really glad about that. So if I had the dream again, I would not be feeling guilt. I would probably be thinking something else. So I'm really, so it really took that dream to have the clarity I needed to do the hard things of saying no to other projects and stuff. Yeah. Walk us through that because people really struggle to say no. What are the things you said no to because you were clear on what you needed to say yes to? Oh my gosh. Uh, Teaching extra classes at Stanford, uh, joining other academic research projects, joining industry research projects, traveling to speak. Uh, It just goes on and on. I'm I'm a huge optimist. And I like I like helping people. And so yeah, it's like sure I can do this, I can do this. so it just was getting a stronger muscle or a tighter filter about what I say yes to. And then it was also just explaining to people, I I can't do this. I'm writing a book. Now, I, I'd experienced it before when I was writing my dissertation. So I knew that I could carve out this space because I remember writing my dissertation it was a wonderful time. So I was like, nope, I'm right. I can't do anything. I'm writing my dissertation. So I said no a lot. And I just remember at the time how liberating that felt. And so I, I guess part of me knew I could do it, but there was there's so many cool things to do in the world of behavior change, so many areas that need help, and so many ways I want to help that it was much, much harder later in my life to say no to all this. And then I'm going to do this book that I knew would not be in people's hands for two to three years. But that's what it takes. And so you know, I, I, you know, I, I talk about prioritizing till it hurts, and still I have to prioritize harder, but not as hard as a book. I mean, a book is just, you know, you never want to lose momentum on a project like that. At least that's why I see it. I mean, that's how I got my dissertation done very qu- quickly. You just don't lose the momentum, and part of it is to do, work on it every day, to some extent, do something every day, and so that means saying no to a lot. I don't really have any special. There's other people in the world that are probably much better at here's how to say no to stuff. Certainly there's other people that um you that are really good at helping get clear on priorities, but that that had to happen. Otherwise, I'd still be doing research and discovering other things and further feeling guilty because here's all these other things I'm not yet sharing. And I feel like I have a responsibility. It's it's a responsibility, I feel like. And when you discover something like the behavior model or the tiny habits method, you have a responsibility. To share that, not just an opportunity, a responsibility, and that's how I see it. I think that's part of my Mormon upbringing, uh, where much yeah. is given, much is expected. You, you just mentioned the behavior model, and I'm glad you did because when when you walked through it, it brought structure to to something that I mean, frankly, I I'm a student of this. I've been 
very intentionally working to form habits for the last five years, purposefully. Um, it's life-changing. I mean, you see my shirt, decide your habits, decide your futures. There's a reason okay. I'm reading this. Uh, walk us through your behavior model. Yeah, it's it on the surface. You can understand it. It's very simple, but it's actually profound. I mean, it goes and goes and goes and super fun to work with. On the surface, it goes like this. Behavior happens when three things come together at the same moment. There's motivation to do the behavior. There's the ability to do the behavior. And there's a prompt. So those three things happening at the same moment, you're prompted to do a behavior that you're both motivated and able to do, then behavior will happen. If any one of those three things is missing, you won't do the behavior. And so that's, that's like behavior model 101. And there's ways you can use that. But then there's a graphical version of it that's in the book, Tiny Habits. And at behaviormodel.org, I unpack more of that. And right now in my Stanford lab, a new project we're doing is about vaccination, anticipating there will be a safe and effective vaccine. And how do we help people creating those programs be effective? And so you can take it and apply it to what is going to be a challenging problem is getting enough people vaccinated. And it can be used to change choices. It can be used to uh, create onboarding. And, and it, essentially, the behavior model is like the little, I think of it as like a little tinker toy. That's like the perfect tinker toy. And then you can combine it and, and with others in different ways to create anything you want. I mean, because so many things are comprised of behavior. So if you have that little tinker toy, and if it's the right one, you can't use a faulty one. It's, you know, that's what the behavior models. Then you combine it and recombine it and remix it and sequence it. And you can create anything you want in that way. So let's, let's look at your life because I, I would love to apply the behavior model to a habit that you formed. Because I, we've got, but we've probably got close to a thousand people right now in our membership community that are going on a, that are in the middle of forming a habit. We're doing it together. We've locked arms. And a lot of people think like, oh, I'm just going to, Check my 411 before I check my email. Or I'm just going to ask myself, what's my one thing today? Like something so small, but then they start to miss days. And yeah. they realize just because it's simple doesn't mean that it happens. So walk us through a time in your life where you said, you know what, I want to change my behavior. I want to form a habit. Walk us through how you analyze the motivation, the ability, the prompt. Yeah. You know, for many, Types of habit you design, you don't have to even get that much in depth. It, it can for for challenging habits, yeah, you'll probably want to dig deeper and look at the motivation. Da, da, da. But there's some you can just wire in very simply. I'll just I'll just give one here because it's on my desk. Um, I am for whatever reason I do believe that taking vitamins and supplements is good for me. I know that can be controversial, but I believe that you know vitamins and supplements and so on. But as it turns out the eight or so vitamins and supplements I take in the morning is kind of a big behavior. And so in making that a habit, I found I would miss because it felt too hard. Why? I don't know. It just did. So you take any habit you want. This is the tiny habits method. And you make it super, super tiny. And in the case of vitamins, what I realized is you just, I just put them in this dish. And I, here's the actual dish. And this happened to be sitting on my desk because I'm in process of this. So the new habit isn't actually swallowing my vitamins. It's putting them in a dish and then putting the dish on my work desk. 
And then what happens naturally during the day, because I also have a habit of putting water, is I will take the vitamins during the day. So where I was not succeeding was on a behavior that does seem easy, but it was not easy enough. I take eight vitamins and supplements, not easy enough. So I had to, once I made it even tinier, then it became super reliable. And so the tiny habit recipe goes like this. After I tell my partner, thank you for cooking breakfast. So what you do is you find a routine you already do in your life that's very reliable. Every morning, my partner cooks me breakfast. Every morning, I thank him. So after I thank my partner for cooking breakfast, I will put my vitamins in this dish. So I know exactly where it fits in my day. So what you're looking for, so in addition to making a new habit super tiny, you're saying, where does this fit naturally in my day? What does it come after? And in tiny habits, I call that anchoring. You anchor it, you tie it to something very reliable. And so it's almost like you're writing computer code. It's like, here's what I do in the mornings, boom, 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 boom. Oh, and I'm going to insert this thing right here. Put vitamins a dish goes here. And if you design it, if you insert in the right spot, the habit can become very, very reliable very, very, very quickly. If you put it in the wrong spot of your day, you won't do it reliably. And then it's like, oh, let me find it. So it's a design challenge to find where does this new habit fit in your life? And then so it wires in. And so you're not using willpower or discipline to create the habit. You're using design. Okay, you design the new habit to be super tiny, and then you design it into your existing routine. And specifically, what does it come after? What really stood out to me when I was listening to the book was, you know, your model is behavior happens when it's motivation, ability, and prompts all come together. You list them in that order. Yet you, you shared how so many people, they start with the motivation. I'm motivated to change this behavior. But we all know that novelty wears off. Depending on where we are in our days, the motivation can drain. And you advise that we actually start by designing around the prompt itself. Yeah. You know, a lot of people overlook prompt or they just think, oh, I'll remember. And guess what, people? You know, just relying on yourself to remember can work from time to time, but it's not a good way to design a habit. So you get, so in the book, I unpack that there's three sources of prompt. So yes, you have motivation, ability, prompt. Each one of those has three kind of components or arms. So you can self-prompt, which is just remembering to do something. It happens, but it's not reliable. You can use what I call a context prompt. That's something in your environment that prompts you. That could be a post-it note. It could be alarm. It could be a notification. It could be your spouse telling you to do it. Those uh, can turn out to be overwhelming and nagging. And then, you, <laughs> right? Because if you have, have two minutes, talking to my wife. <laughs> okay. If you have, but if you have for for habits, for if it's a one-time behavior. Then a context prompt might be really great. Like I'll tell my partner all the time, remind me to call my mom tonight or please remind me to do whatever. If it's one time, if it's a habit, which is a different kind of behavior, you don't want to be using context prompts. So what the third type of prompt is what I call an action prompt, an action you already do, a routine you already do can serve as the reminder for the new behavior. So that's where it's like, you know, the vitamins in the dish, what existing action or routine does this come after and so you it's a hack right and this is a hack that came to me i gave a ted talk on exactly this how this came to me literally getting out of the shower it's like oh my gosh just use your existing routine to be the reminder for the new habit 
them. And so that's how you can design new habits into your life without the clutter of post-it notes or the annoyance of alarms going off at the wrong time and so on. You use your routines to be the bomb. I love that. So I want to see... I'm going to watch just to see from our audience what they say. BJ, I'm curious, do you have any stats on in terms of in America, what percentage of people have the habit of flossing their teeth every day? It's been about 10 years since I looked at the research. And the research I found back then had huge differences, like 12 to 60%. And I remember one study, and I may not get the number exactly right, but even dentists are like 50 or 60%. They're not 100%. So there's different studies will say certain things, but the takeaway is many, many people are not flossing who do feel like they should be flossing. Yes. So, so I asked because 50-50 I, I, even surprises me, right? I feel like majority of people don't. So if I were to say that you, sir, train 10,000 people to floss, we understand the gravity of that accomplishment. Walk us through how you did it. Wow. And did you know that flossing and proper oral care is not just about your teeth. It's heart health, it's pregnant moms, all this. I mean, they're finding that flossing and, Dude, and the number of times care. Jay says to me, it's the one, it, it's actually proven to extend your life. Like if I had a dime <laughs> for every time you told me that. Um, so when I started teaching, so I was hacking my own habits in about 2010. I'd kind of in a bad spot and kind of gained additional weight over a couple of years. Da, 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 da. So then when this method worked for me, like I was creating all these habits and I was succeeding in all these ways and feeling awesome. And I was like, this is crazy. Can it really be this easy? So at the end of 2010, I posted to Facebook. I said, hey, everybody, New Year's coming up. And I, I'd finished teaching my... I remember I'd finished teaching that quarter for Stanford and I felt like I had tons of free time. So it was like December 6th or 9th. Like, hey, let me teach you this new method of da, 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 hacking your behavior. And 60 people signed up for the first week. I wanted six. And then it went to 180 and 200 and so on. So in because flossing for me had been one of the habits from the beginning, when I started teaching tiny habits to other people, I suggested flossing one too. And it's funny and it's it's just a great example in so many ways. And so I think because it was always suggested as one of the habits, as you know, 300 people on average per week were signing up for tiny habits, I would say at least a third of them, it's probably way more than that, would pick flossing one, two, there's a habit. And so after coaching 40, 50,000 people like that, certainly, yeah, 10,000 people have probably taken that on. Um, but yeah. but I love it. It was like, after I brush my teeth, I will floss one, one two. two, which you and I both know if I take, if I, I don't have the little sticks, I actually have to get the string out and wrap it around the fingers. If I, if I do one, I'm not stopping. Yeah. Well, here's how it works. And it's so good that you said that. And it's a great sign. You say in tiny habits with any habit, you scale it back and you make it super small. And it's one tooth. On day one, you can do all your teeth if you want. But you do not raise the bar. And this is where people like journalists summarizing my work often get it wrong. It's like you start small and grow from there. It's like, no, not really. You start small and you keep it small or you keep the bar low anyway. You will naturally start doing more. You will naturally floss more teeth. You will naturally end up flossing all your teeth. But you don't raise the bar and you don't require it. 
The example of doing push-ups is an easier example to understand. So you start two push-ups. You don't go five and eight and 12 and then require yourself to do 20, 30, 40, because eventually you will fail. That's not the tiny habits method. You do not raise the bar in the tiny habits method. It's always one, two. So it's always two push-ups. And when you want to do more, including on day one, you can do more, but you think of it as extra credit. You think of it as going above and beyond, which helps you think of yourself as the kind of person that goes above and beyond. You're the A-plus student, right? So that's part of the identity shift that the Tiny Habits Method is designed to do for people. It's shifting you from a person that thinks, oh, I never follow through, I can't change my behavior, to, oh my gosh, I am consistent, I am reliable, and I go above and beyond. And with that new identity, that then unlocks so many other things for you. I think this is really important because um, you spell it out in the book. We actually can't change behavior if it's not in line with our identity of ourselves. So how do we, if I'm the type of person who, for example, let's use real one. um, I love sugar. I love baked goods. And if it gets put in front of me, I turn into the freaking cookie monster. Man, once I pop the fun (laughs) stuff, I can't do it. And even as I talk, I know, you know, health is something that's really important to my wife and I. We're paying a lot of attention to our diets. We're trying to go more plant-based. And we know if there was really one thing we could change, it would actually be stripping sugar. So walk us through, how can I shift my identity toward not thinking I'm the type of person who craves sugar all the time? Yeah. Well, I will, I will leverage my long experience with my addiction with popcorn. Because it's going to be really similar. I know people always laugh, but this was a serious problem. And I wanted to put it in my book and the editors, my editor, like, no, you're not using popcorn as your addiction example because people have life-threatening addictions. But I was like, no, it's true. It's real. It had hold over me like a serious drug. And it's like, no, you're not using it. So I've been there. I have been there. Okay, I'll say that. What I would probably shoot for, I would use tiny habits and I'd create a tiny habit that allows you to say no to sugar. Mm. Um, let me give an example that I used. I don't use it now because I don't go to restaurants, but back in the day, I didn't want to eat a ton of bread at a restaurant or chips because if it shows up at the table, I'm eating it. I love bread and chips. So the tiny habit recipe is this. After I see the server coming to our table with bread, I will say, no bread, please. Those three words. And what that led to was no bread on the table, which means I wasn't eating it. So I have applied this now that I've broken my popcorn addiction. There'll be times when people have popcorn or they'll actually know I love popcorn. Like one of my dear friends here in Maui, she served me this really special popcorn. And uh, normally I would say, no, I'm off popcorn. I'm not doing popcorn. That just, you know, when popcorn comes up, but I didn't want to hurt her feelings. So I just put it in my pocket. Because she's 91 and she was being really sweet and whatever. But I had the identity of I'm the kind of person who can say no to popcorn. And this is where I'm going for you. So if you can create a tiny habit recipe where you say no to sugar and you can help yourself see the evidence that you've done that at least a few times and that you can succeed, then your identity, rather than saying, oh my gosh, I'm totally susceptible to sugar, becomes I can say no to sugar. I'm the kind of person who can say no to sugar. Now, you mm. have to find which... Like, I wouldn't try to solve it all at once. Like I talk about this in the book and 
there is the example of a woman, Junie, her real name, who untangled. Trust me, tell us three times. Okay. And Junie actually texted me this morning because there's fires in California. She was concerned about me. She's wonderful. And so she had this, she didn't even want to change her sugar addiction. You know, she was working on an app. So she came to my boot camp and, and then thought, and she announced at my boot camp, I'm a sugar addict. And everyone laughed and she wasn't trying to change it. She was just sharing. But then once she learned um, my models and methods of behavior, then she applied it to her sugar addiction because it was having a serious effect on her family members. And she didn't want to go down the same path of illness and dying. And she untangled her sugar addiction. So in your case, look for the time you eat sugar. That would be the easiest to say no to. Not the hardest. Think of it as a tangle. And you don't go for the deepest, hardest tangle. You go for the easiest one. So maybe after lunch, uh, you have the habit of uh, getting out a cookie or something like that. So if you can develop a tiny habit, you know, after my daughter offers me a cookie, I will say no. So you're not tackling the whole sugar monster. You're taking one little tangle and getting rid of it. Then you're going to the next easiest one. So you're using the tiny habits method, just like I say, no bread, please, to stop that. Then eventually you will either be at a level of sugar intake that you're okay with. You may not go to zero and you're fine with where you're at. Or you'll you'll find that the hold that sugar had on you will not be like it was at all. And that's what Junie found. It's like, once she got to a certain level, it was no longer this thing she had to have. She could say yes or no to it. It was something that she finally got control of in her life, which, and I give details in the book, it just opened up parts of her life she never expected. It strengthened the relationship with her son and her husband. And she had no idea that her sugar addiction was getting in the way of having a better, richer life. So you start really, really small and you untangle the easiest thing to untangle and you look at it as a process. So that's why I never talk about breaking bad habits. It's you untangle them. And that's that that really stood out to me because so many people who will work to form habits, sometimes it's forming a new positive one. And sometimes they're looking at something in their life that's actually not serving them, that's undermining what they actually want. And they, they want to break it. And when you said, Breaking a habit sounds hard. That doesn't sound tiny, but a bad habit is just a series of micro little mini habits that are all tied together in a a knot that we just have to start untangling one at a time. And even as you said it, I was going, huh. (gasps) Relief, huh? Interesting. Yeah, you can do that. I mean, you can do that. And, And pick the easiest one. I mean, people like us, and people listening to this, when I say like us, I mean, everybody listening to this or who will, we're ambitious people or you wouldn't be listening to this. You wouldn't even be paying attention, okay? So you really do want to optimize yourself. And one of the surprises or one of the paradoxes is the way you get to big outcomes is you do tiny things and you allow yourself to feel successful in those tiny things. And that's what aggregates to these big outcomes. For something like for many, many changes in our life, we have conflicting motivations. Part of us wants to do it. Part of us doesn't want to do it. And part of us that doesn't want to do it is that part that doesn't want to feel like we failed again. Okay. So we have Mm. fear of failing because we've tried. So if you pick the easiest, easiest, easiest thing, you're like, well, I'm not going to fail on this. And then you see, and this is what Tiny Habits, the free five-day program, probably starting year one or two, was really about helping people see evidence they could change. So it's not a pep talk. It's 
you see that you change. You like, bam, you did it. You said no to bread. You said no to sugar. And so then that shifts, that reduces the fear of failing. But start with the easiest thing, and then you go to the next one and the next one, and you save the toughest tangle for the end. And just like a phone cord when you're untangling it, where it's like a total mess at the beginning, you have no idea how you're going to get untangled. You know if you're systematic, you can do it. And then when you get to the end, that tangle that seems so hard in the middle might just fall away. And that's what happened to Junie. All the stuff in the middle that she could never get from the beginning, once she did the easy ones around it, then it all just ironed out and there it was. You know, so the tangling analogy is very accurate for these kinds of habits. And I think we just, I think we, um, we underestimate how just picking that one little lead domino that's two inches that like effortless. So we can just go dink, how that actually can start to knock down so much more. So much. And so I don't say it quite this way in the book, but I've said it elsewhere. It takes courage to go tiny. Okay. Because it goes against maybe your self-concept and you're the kind of person. So guess what? If you're struggling to change, step up and have the courage to do something really tiny. And then have the openness to feel good about it, okay? In other words, stop judging yourself. Stop having such a high bar. Lower it, okay? The old way of changing something big and being critical about it, that's not tiny habits. That's the old way. Don't do that. Stop doing that. Make it tiny and feel good about it. And when it doesn't work the way you want it, that's okay. It's just like you just redesign it. You have compassion for yourself. So it's really a change method that's about feeling good, not feeling bad. I love that. And you think about your life and your journey up to this point, BJ. What have been some of the most profound habits that you've formed? Mm, There's a lot. And what happens when you create habits, they'll just become part of your life. Then you'll forget you actually created the habit. They just become seamless. Uh, I'll just give some current ones. Uh, Well, certainly, I mean, an old one is we changed how we ate food. And are you talking about super fridge? Are you going there? Yeah, super a little bit. I won't go into details. That's a longer story. But changing how you eat, uh, and that ended up not just being one habit. It's like fifty or sixty habits. But pick what you want at the beginning. And my partner and I did that, and we both lost. 20 pounds, well over 15% of our body weight. And we stayed there ever since. And it's not hard. If you figure it out in in this way, systematic way, you lose weight and you stay there and it's not hard. It's uh, It's not like it creeps up or we're tempted. It's like you just figure it out and you get down to the weight that I feel is appropriate for me. Next is every morning. So we live in Maui now. We didn't intend to be here a year. We usually here half the year, but thanks to COVID, we're here now. I surf every morning. And that is a profound, it's not tiny, but certainly by moving to Maui, I've made it easier to do ability and more motivating. And there's a bunch of things I've done to make it super, super easy. But it's a super motivating habit. So it doesn't have to be that easy. And that to me is profound because one, I get a great workout. Two, I'm in nature. Three, I'm starting my day. And go back to the nature. Nature is spirituality to me. And like this morning, for example, the way the the clouds were and there's a big rainbow and it was just like insanely beautiful. And then I start my day in this positive way that then I can come and boom, hit work and just 
be optimistic and have a lot of energy. So for me, that thing about being on the ocean and playing with Mother Nature, the power of Mother Nature, is just that's profound for me. In a way that it's not just trivial surfer thing. It's it's a spiritual experience, and I just feel so lucky to be able to do that while I'm here. I, I want to think... dive into the I want to dive into the weight one because I know this is something for I mean gosh every every New Year's it's one of the top things that people say oh this is going to be the year I'm going to lose weight what yeah. what were some of those tiny things you did that made a huge difference first of all I realized that weight loss was not about working out that it was about what I ate and I think too often people think oh I'm just going to go work no working out matters and maybe weight weight training. Resistance training has a component, but I'm pretty sure this is BJ Fogg's personal opinion. Cardio is not how you lose the weight. It was nutrition. So I just totally focused on, in fact, for most of the journey, I wasn't going to the gym at all or working out at all. I was taking all that energy and focusing on changing my eating. So one, figuring out snacks, I really liked. So rather than going to the bad snacks, go to the good snacks. And so the snacks were not popcorn anymore. Uh, it was cauliflower. I figured out I really like cauliflower. So like the three o'clock afternoon snack, cauliflower, and if I needed a little more with mustard, <laughs> brown mustard, which is weird, but then it became a really good snack habit that kept me on my game plan. Uh, we ended up figuring out breakfast that worked for us really well. And at the time it was eggs, steamed spinach, I think it was just that eggs and steamed spinach. Of course, I put mustard on it. I love mustard. Now my breakfast is mushrooms and sauteed mushrooms and celery and onions, uh, along with some hemp seed and maybe some nuts. So it was the same breakfast mostly over and over and over. So once we found a breakfast that was on our game plan, just always that breakfast. There was no temptation to do toast or, you know, some sort of sugary shake. It was like figure out what works and stick there, and. So between snacking and at a very healthy, consistent breakfast, I think those are the starting points. And then there was Super Fridge. So I don't know if you want to go there, but then there was Super Fridge. I, I do. I do because literally when I listened to it, it was after the first time I did it. My wife and I did it. And then you were talking about it. So I want you to talk about Super Fridge. Well, thank you. So there are two ways that you need to use simultaneously to change, to have an outcome like weight loss or better sleep, these more challenging things, more challenging than flossing. You got to think about how do I change in these tiny ways and make it a habit? And how do I change my environment or my contact? Those two things work together. Now, if it's simple, like flossing your teeth, yes, you want to get the floss out and leave it out. And that's fine and good and natural. If you want to surf, yes, move to Maui or move near the ocean, change your environment, or you're not going to be surfing. But for uh, nutrition and sleep and media use and things like that. You've got to do both. Create these habits that are easy and you feel successful and redesign your environment. So I, I knew that. So part of what we did, I won't go into the whole story how it evolved, but we ended up working together as a household. So everybody trying to get at your ideal weight, try to make it a household endeavor. So you're not doing it alone and other people are drinking soda and pizza. You can and then, so we, um, so my partner's on board with it. And so what we do is once a week, and he mostly does it, thank you, Denny, is prepares all the vegetables, like the cauliflower and the broccoli, chop it up, wash it, put it in these clear glass containers, quinoa, uh, get that ready to go, it's cooked, 
put in a container, chopped onions, chopped celery, and then other things just ready to go. And nothing is in the fridge that's off our game plan. So policy, no ice cream in the fridge, no things we're not eating. So part of it is we don't bring the, the foods not on our game plan into the house. And then we make the foods that are on our game plan really, really easy to eat. So then when you open Super Fridge, boom, you can eat anything in the fridge and as much as you want. And that was important to me. Open the fridge and there's no resisting any, anything I want, I can have as much as I want. And so when you have it ready to go like that, and you don't have to use any willpower or discipline, you just pull stuff out and make things really, really quickly. And you don't feel deprived. So super fridge, the shift for me really was understanding this thing we call a fridge is the job of the fridge is not keeping things cold. The job of the fridge is to help me eat on my game plan. And the game mm-hmm. plan is going to be different for different people, but it's a shifting. What is the role of the fridge? Your job is to help us eat on our game plan, which then has all these other good effects, including losing weight and staying at the weight that you want. So my partner called it Super Fridge, and he's very proud of it. I mean, we disagreed about what kind of containers and stuff. And since he pretty much rules the kitchen, I let him ultimately decide. So we have really these high-end glass, nice containers, but it doesn't have to be expensive containers. It's just a matter of make it really, really easy to eat on your game plan. And then make it hard to eat off your game plan. Don't let ice cream in the house or bread in the house if those are not on your game plan. I'll say this has been pretty impactful for my wife, Amy, and I, because it's a perfect example of how doing one thing has had a massive domino effect. On Sundays is our day that we prepare for the week. And my wife and I will review the grocery list. She'll go to the grocery store, which for her is therapeutic. She's getting a break from the kids. She gets to go and do her shopping. Like That all feels good. She comes back energized. She'll drop the food off. I'll start prepping. And she'll leave and she'll go get mommy her, her own time and do whatever she wants to do. I've got the kids. I'm prepping the foods. I'm baking the sweet potatoes. I'm preparing the quinoa. I'm roasting the broccoli. Like I'm getting it all ready. I'm putting it in the containers. It comes home. She gets to do her favorite thing in the world, which is organize. So she makes the fridge look beautiful. So it's healthy. It's beautiful. And then as I go through the weeks, because my schedule is so packed, I get out of a meeting and I can literally run and just grab a few things, throw into a bowl, and boom, I'm right back. And so it's like it filled the health. It filled um, my wife and I being aligned and marching in the same direction on something. It gives her mommy time. It it feeds her organizational bucket. Like All these things happened at the same time. so great. That's great. That's perfect. You did it exactly right. Those of you who are not partnered or married, guess what matters? It matters that you find somebody who has complementary skills and interests to you. Like if nobody wants to do the shopping, that's a problem. If nobody wants to like organize, that's a problem. So it just happens that my partner and I have very complementary skills. He loves doing stuff in the kitchen. He actually loves doing laundry. He'll deny it, but he does it every day. I'm not great at things. I do other things that he doesn't want to do. Like I've got to upload a financial document into Box. I'll do that for him today. So it's the complementary. This is what you're looking for. I'm giving marriage advice. This is what you're looking for, people. You're looking for that person you can hang out with 24-7 and that every task that you need to do in terms of living, somebody is okay doing that task. And that's often looking for your compliment. I love that. You shared a story about Amy. It was a case study yeah. of 
after she dropped off her daughter, she she asked herself a, a question, and it had a profound impact in her life. I would love you to tell the story because obviously it's very aligned with our brand. Yeah, Amy can tell much better than I can, and that is her real name. We changed some of the names, but Amy is her real name. She's a tiny habits coach, uh, and she's terrific. And she works with me on some projects. She's awesome. So Amy, oh, this story has a lot of nuances. I will get to what I think is really meaty. Amy and her husband split up. It wasn't a good match. And she realized if she didn't make money, she was potentially going to lose her daughters because her husband was angry. And that's my understanding. And that she felt like he would come after custody and she would lose her daughters. So she was super motivated to make her business work, but it wasn't working because she wouldn't do the important things. And she would work on like her logo or design and not sales, you know, and there's more to it. But that's, you know, in summary, she was not working on the important thing. And so then when she came across Tiny Habits, she said she used the method to prioritize what's the one thing I'm going to do today. And like you said, as soon as she, after she dropped off her daughter, she would pull off to the side and she would write on a post-it note, what's the one thing I'm getting done today? And she'd put it, I think on her steering wheel, is that her dashboard? And then she would go home, go to her home office and get it done. And it was that, just that, that then opened, got her doing the things that mattered in her business, which then led to her making pretty good money and not feeling at night. She would wake up. I don't know if this is in the book, but she would just have all this anxiety around, I'm going to lose my daughter. I'm going to lose my daughters. And once she started making money and doing well and being financially secure, that went away. And it just came back to that. It just came back to that one habit of saying, what's the one thing I'm going to get done today? Yeah, I think um, you know when, when Gary and Jay wrote the book, on the back, they put a question mark. Because they literally asked, what's the one thing we want somebody to do after reading this book? And the answer was, we wanted somebody to ask the question, what's my one thing? That's the success habit. That was almost the title of the book, the success habit. And people really underestimate how forming a habit of just asking, what's my one thing today? Whether you figure it out or not, just asking the question can change your whole life. Because if I remember the nuances of the story, BJ, she she wasn't split up yet. She was afraid to leave her husband yeah. because, because of the money and all this stuff. And this, she got divorced. She she was able, she started a content agency. Like she's living great. Her dream. Yeah, she's doing amazing work now. Yeah. And it's just, and so when people ask me to recommend books, Yours is one of the few that I recommend. I recommend almost no books, but yours is one. And this is before we met and all this. And you didn't even know that. But if you do the right tiny thing, it can have these profound effects. And what you've done is you've crystallized and you've articulated and you're giving people a program to do this very, very important thing that is small. Let me ask you a question. When people then say, hey, I need... Doing this one thing about asking the question isn't going to get me where I need. I need to do something big and hard. How do you respond to that? Because I, I hear that a lot. It's like, I need big changes. So tiny is not going to work. How do you respond? I, I, I hear it. Um, I, hear, I, I hear that a lot. And I also hear I have more than one thing. And the answer to that is, is the same, which is, look, we all have a lot on our plate. And we're not saying that you just do one thing. Because that one independent thing on its own is not going to unleash extraordinary results in your life. But just like when we were kids, when we lined up dominoes, it would have been ridiculous if we needed to knock 50 down to line them up and knock each one down individually. We understand yeah. if we just stand them up, line them up, and whack away at the first one first, everything else does become easier or unnecessary. 
Yeah, and this so aligns with what I found in the years of teaching tiny habits and every week measuring. So week after week, it was measuring impact. And I, I called it success momentum. Success momentum seems to be created not by the size of your success, by the frequency. And dominoes is a good analogy. In fact, I used to have dominoes on a slide and we should have talked years ago where guess what? You just, if you do the right small thing, it creates this momentum. It has this chain reaction. And in tiny habits, even since the beginning, this was the first thing we measured at the end of the five days. So usually during the weekend, they're doing this evaluation, which is anonymous. So people will give us true answers, hopefully true answers, is besides the three habits you worked on this week, did you change anything else in your life? And the vast majority of people, like 80% on average, I'll dial that back. I'll say 70% to be super safe report they either made other small changes or a big change as a result of doing these little simple tiny habits method stuff. So it change leads to change. And so that's part of what people need to understand. The change doesn't have to be big. And this is why like you're talking about domino, the change can be small. It just if you feel successful, then it leads to the next, to the next, to the next. The key really is the feeling of success. So if you don't feel successful, it doesn't have that same success momentum effect, it seems. Yeah. And, and I, I will say, like, let's keep coming back to that, the feeling of successful. You know, we, we, we don't have enough time to dive into it today, but you dive into it very deeply in the book in terms of how do you identify your celebration moments? How do you, I, how do you feel what you call shine? That, war, that feeling when you just, you feel successful, like you just scored the winning point at the end of the game and you just, that feeling of shine. How do we f- design and feel that when we do our one thing or whatever that thing is we're trying to create a habit? How do we do that so that we can take the amount of time it might take to form a habit and collapse it and form habits so much faster? So well said. Yeah, so one of the, I thought this would be super controversial. So in the book, so my book isn't a summer of the old stuff. I don't summarize any of the old stuff because I don't think the old stuff works very well. It's all new stuff. And one of the things is uh, in the chapters entitled Emotions Create Habits. And that's radically different than the old wisdom of repetition. And so what I've identified is there's an emotion, a feeling. So as you do a behavior and you feel successful, it rewires your brain to make that behavior more automatic. It's reinforcement. And you can self-reinforce you can cause yourself to feel successful. And in any habits, that technique I call celebration. And so if you do a habit like putting vitamins in a dish, and if you can cause yourself to feel successful, then that's going to become more automatic. So you're hacking your emotion so you can hack your brain and create the habit. And the stronger the emotion, the better you are at firing off the positive emotion, the faster the habit will form. That emotion of success, so any positive emotion can be connected, can reinforce for the habit. In tiny habits, the emotion we're designing for is feeling of success because it has these other, for lots of reasons that I won't go into. But the feeling of success, oh, that emotion what? hadn't been named. And so I had the opportunity after calling four of my academic colleagues who are world experts on emotion, really making sure I wasn't making a mistake here in naming something that had not been named. So this emotion, this feeling of success, I name it shine. So what you're doing, if you want to wire in a habit, is if you do something and feel shine, you can hack it yourself by physical movements, by thinking thoughts, by... I give over 100 ways in the book. 
It can come from somebody else that helps you feel shine. They reinforce you or it can just come from if you tidy something up and look at it and think, man, that looks so much better. Just from the behavior sometimes will give you shine. doesn't matter where it comes from, but shine is the thing. That emotion is what creates the habit. So if you know how to fire off shine on demand and you're good at that, then you have superpowers for creating habits. Because then you just use that skill whenever you want to create a habit. And that's part of, I thought this part of the book would be controversial. It turns out, no, people recognize this, right? But it's radically different than the traditional way of thinking. And I I would really, you know, for those of you that are listening to this, if, if you're the type of person who believes that you decide your habits, you decide your future, listen to Tiny Habits. Because he goes into such depth about how can you find your celebration moment. Mine is, yeah, good for you. I, I do that when I do my one thing. Oh boy, we're 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 off and running. And find your moment. Figure out yeah. how you're going to celebrate. Figure out how you can start to feel shine because it it, it will absolutely help you. BJ, um, I would love for people to know how they can get a copy of Tiny Habits. How they can check out your boot camp. Where can they go? Two resources mainly. One is tinyhabits.com. You can do the free five-day program there. We have other free resources there. And of course, we link to the book uh, that you can get in lots of places, uh, including airports, if anybody's going to airports anymore. (laughs) Next is bjfog.com, which is a broader, uh, you know, links to my Stanford website. And it talks about the Behavior Design Bootcamp, which is for professionals designing products. In Tiny Habits, you can get certified in the Tiny Habits method. And so we have a certification program. But then there's boot camp. So there's two trainings I do for coaches who want to become certified in Tiny Habits or for product creators. And that's the boot camp. So tinyhabits.com, bjfog.com are probably the dashboards where you go find other things Perfect. from there. And then I do have a special announcement for, for those of uh, you who are on who are annual members in our community. Um, the t-shirt I'm wearing right now is an exclusive tee that was um, when we did a we went on a habit challenge together, BJ, at the beginning of COVID. And one of the things we said is, hey, for our annual members who go through this and complete this successfully and send us your t-shirt size, we will send you an exclusive tee. And our um, one of our members, Rodrigo, designed this That's shirt. Great. So this is limited edition. This will never be sold on the website. For those of you that are annual members who are joining us uh, during that challenge, who who sent us your t-shirt size. They'll be in the mail in the next few weeks. We haven't even announced. This is the first public announcement of it. And um, we just want to say thank you so much for for being a member. Um, There's a lot of things we try to do for these people. And for those of our annual members, you're also getting a free ticket to our upcoming virtual goal-setting retreat, the one for couples as well as the one for individuals and teams. And if those of you um, would like to join that, you can also check out the onething.com slash setmygoals and you can learn more there. So BJ... um, Genuinely, man, it was it was really a pleasure getting to chat with you, and I I have a feeling this is the beginning of, of something much bigger. Yay! Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, there you have it: our conversation with best-selling author of Tiny Habits, BJ Falk. One of the things that stood out to me is having the courage to go small, having the courage to form a tiny habit. When our ego says, go big, form the big habit, give up sugar altogether, work out every single day, wake up at 5 a.m. No. The path to getting everything you want starts by getting one thing at a time. This means we have to think big about our future, but go small and trust the dominoes will fall. Here's our question for you. 
do you have the courage to go small? Do you have the courage to look at a future behavior that you want to be part of your reality and your identity and to start tiny, a two-inch little domino that if you just flicked your finger effortlessly, it would fall. But because you started to do it consistently, because you started to celebrate and feel success and build momentum over time, all the other dominoes would fall. This is the key, folks. And this is why we brought this episode to you today. So based on everything you heard, what's the one thing you could do? Such it by doing it, everything else would be easier or unnecessary. If you're one of those people that says, all right, I'm in and I want to go on this journey. We want to be on the journey with you as your guide. We hope that you will take the time and go to theonething.com slash set my goals because our signature event, the couple's goal setting retreat, as well as the one thing goal setting retreat for individuals and teams is coming up here shortly. For those of you that are already annual members of Living Your One Thing, you get to attend this for free. And for those of you, if you're not yet an annual member, go to theonething.com slash set my goals and check it out. This is truly, if we ask the question, how can we support you having that relationship with your goals, getting clarity with all the confusion that's going on and put a real plan in place for next year and then launch the year with a 66-day challenge with us, this is the program. Go to theonething.com slash setmygoals. We also hope that you will pick up a copy of Tiny Habits. Uh, very seriously, I, I can't endorse it any higher. I listened to it. The notes I took were so detailed. And I'm just excited to continue the relationship with BJ because obviously our, our two our two brands are, are very, very much aligned. If this episode has brought value to you, we have a humble request. Who's one person you know that needs to hear it? Really, think about it. Who's one person you know that needs to hear this? Will you be the type of person that will actually pause this episode and text it to them and say, hey, I thought of you specifically. I really think this would help you. Listen to this. You'd be making a huge difference for them. And if you are new to the One Thing podcast or not currently subscribed yet, click the subscribe button. Here's why. All future episodes will automatically be downloaded to your device of choice. That way you don't miss a thing. And while you're at it, consider leaving us a rating and review on your podcast player of choice because it helps us reach more people and fulfill our purpose, which is to help you better invest your time by having a relationship with your goals so you can achieve extraordinary results. I'm your host, Jeff Woods. Thanks for investing your time with us. We look forward to being with you in the next episode.